Well, glad to see you here this morning, and uh, this is a great Sunday to be here. If you're not a believer, I uh, welcome you today. Just uh, thankful that you are here. We're going to talk about something that uh, uh, you might be interested in. It may be one of the complaints that you have about God, and so we're going to address that uh, this morning. Uh, if you are a believer, I'm so thrilled that you don't have any tomatoes with you because by the end of this message, you'll be tempted to throw them at me because you might not like what I'm teaching. But I want to be fair to what the text says. And sometimes uh, the things that Scripture says are completely honest and they're not exactly what you want to hear all the time. But I want to assure you that at the end of this message, if you think about it, uh, you will agree that God is sometimes unpredictable, but he's always loving and gracious. So this is the Sunday that I want to let you know that you can follow along in your sermon notes on Version Bible app. Click more events and voila, the notes will come up. You can uh, follow along that way. In three weeks, that will go away. And we are encouraging you to download the Bible, the Circle Drive app, because it's just going to solve all of our problems. And you will love it. Once you're on it, you will see the beauty of it. If you're having trouble connecting, uh, maybe you want to turn off the Wi-Fi and go to your data and the uh, notes will come up. If you go to the app itself, there's a media section on the bottom. You click that, and you'll see the what's wrong with God. That's what we're talking about today. And if you, you go there, you can see that there are the date, which is September. It is the 15th today. And there are you can click message notes and those will appear so you can follow along right on your uh, smartphone. So that's just a great thing. We will no longer have a hard copy bulletin. It will save trees. It will save us money. It will save volunteer hours. It's just, you can see why I'm so excited. If you're listening online, I want to welcome you this morning. Just thank you for tuning in. And last week, we established that a lot of us have experienced the feeling that God is inattentive. Sometimes we think he's just aloof. Where is he? He is not responding. Is anybody home? It's that kind of feeling. We also talked about the fact that sometimes he is uncooperative and he just doesn't cooperate with what we expect of him or want, what we pray. And so uh, that's often a complaint of many people. And the third week we're going to look at the fact that sometimes we think God is late. He should show up a lot sooner than he does. And the old writers used to call it the dark night of the soul, where God just doesn't show up the way 
you think he should on time. And you go through periods of dryness and periods of feeling like he is absent and you're all alone. And so last week we did something really interesting. By show of hands, we asked, have you ever felt this way? And even I was surprised at how many people uh, put up their hands. And then when I thought about it, those that didn't probably didn't understand the question. Because we all have this universal feeling that maybe God is absent and aloof and he's not there the way we want. And sometimes we say, God, would you heal our marriage? God, would you solve our situation, whether it's financial or some other difficulty like relational or career-wise? And there are many times in our desperation, it causes us to ask God to intervene. And we saw last week that often God is silent. And he doesn't come through the way we hope or expect or want. And add insult to injury, church people, especially church people, they point the blame on us. They, things, they say things like, oh, you just need to pray more. Right? Have you ever heard this? Oh, maybe you have sin in your life. You should confess. And maybe you should read your Bible more. And here's my favorite. You should give more money, you know? Give more money to the church, and God will answer your prayers. But we understand that this becomes paralyzing and perplexing because we can do the right things, all the right things, we can have all the faith in the world. And we don't know how much more we can do. And there's nothing left to confess. We have tried everything. And at some point, we shift the focus from what's wrong with me to what's wrong with God. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, He can do anything He wants. Why doesn't he come to my rescue? Why doesn't he do the things that I need him to do? So today and next weeks, we will explore some of the stories of real people that I know God knew their names and God loved them. Yet they experienced similar frustrations to the frustrations that you have with God. And we will discover that there are no simple answers. There's no 60-minute counseling session that will fix it. No 35 message where you can get your life and marriage better. It won't bring your kid home or get you through to a better job. Except, I pray, we will recover the confidence of knowing that you can walk with God through difficult times and know that God is actually with you. And you don't have to associate difficult times with the character of God. Now the first story we're going to look at can be kind of confusing. So this morning we have some uh, portraits of, of the people that we're talking about. And we're going to begin with 
King Herod the Great. And there he is. Uh, he was not named that way because he was so great, but because he was a great builder. He built all kinds of edifices and facilities. He was not Jewish, but he ruled Israel because you remember that that region of the country was, uh, of the world was ruled by Rome, and Rome needed somebody to rule over Israel, and Israel was in subjection to Rome, and this guy was an awful, awful character, really. He was awful. He had a bunch of wives, many wives. He, he murdered two of them. Uh, he murdered three of his sons. He murdered one of his six mother-in-laws. And uh, this is a dream of some guys. <laughs> um, you may not like your mother-in-law, but you may not murder her. Now, this was the same Herod that, that went to Bethlehem at the time when he heard that Jesus, a new king, was about to be born. And this king, Jesus, would interfere with his goals and ambitions. So he sent some of the soldiers to find Jesus. And when he could not find that baby in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, he uh, was so insecure and so evil, he had all babies under the age of two murdered in the region. Can you imagine how evil and how unfeeling a person could be to murder little kids? I mean, I have a, a granddaughter three and a grandson five months, and I could not imagine living in a country where the ruler, Herod the Great, would interfere with my grandkids. But that was in keeping with his character. It was said of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of, of Rome, when Herod was king of Israel, he said this, and I quote, it is better to be one of King Herod's swine than one of his sons. Isn't that something? He was kinder to his pigs than he was to his own uh, kids. Quite a reputation. He was so evil that when he was about to die, he ordered the soldiers to arrest all the leading citizens of the country and put them in prison with this directive that he kill all of those leading citizens when he died, when he breathed his last breath, because he wanted somebody to mourn when he was dying. He knew he was not popular and was not liked. Well, instead of mourning, the day he died, the soldiers released all the leading citizens and there was a party in the street. Now, this guy, Herod the Great, was the original Dr. Evil. Now, when Herod died, Rome decided to divide the kingdom into two because they decided that Herod the Great had far too much power. So they split it up among two of his sons. And these two sons, along with another son, became part of the story this morning. And here's how it worked. The kingdom was split between Herod Achilles, who received 
Samaria. And you can see the family resemblance in the picture. Uh, then uh, he got Samaria, and then in the south, in Judea, Herod Antipas became the ruler down there. So these two sons uh, ruled what their, what their father, Dr. Evil, used to, to rule the whole thing. Now there was a third son. His name was Herod Philip. He didn't get to rule anything. Maybe he just knew his character. I don't know. But he was given a lot of money. So this guy was rich. So he had all of this money and no responsibility. He played video games all day long. You know, he was typical of a young person, right? And, and just wealthy. Now, Herod um, the Great had a, a niece, uh, we don't know which, you know, where she came from. Her name was Herodias. And Herodias is part of the story. So Herodias fell in love with Philip, Herod Philip, and they married. They had a, a daughter by the name of Salome. Salome was the daughter. And things get kind of crazy now in the story. The story gets crazy. Herod Antipas went to visit his, his, his brother, Herod Philip. And as the story goes, there was a moment in time when, when Herod Antipas was alone with Herodias. And he, and he said to Herodias, he said, you know, I know this is awkward, but I think I'm in love with you. And she said, you know, it's not awkward. I'm in love with you too. And so he basically stole, Herod Antipas stole his brother Philip's wife. He took her home to his country in Judea. And they lived together. He, he, he brought her into the palace. She was married. They were married in Galilee. And now she lives. She lives in the palace with Herod Antipas, and it was awkward. Any Thanksgiving meal was really awkward in the family because now he had his brother's wife. And I hope Bev would never do this, to, you know. I would feel sorry for her because she would have one of the inferior brothers. But, you know, it was a weird family dynamic. And so this is part of the story. You have to understand this. Uh, is part of this this story. So, Galilee in Judea is where Jesus spent most of his time. So Jesus was very familiar with Herod Antipas, and now they're living together, Herodias and A and Antipas, in this beautiful city that his father had built. Herod the Great had built this beautiful city. And life was great. It was great. He had Herodias. He had his, his country to rule. He had wealth. He had everything going for him. And here's where the story goes out. Because we enter another character by the name of John the Baptist. And you know whose cousin John the Baptist was? Jesus. Jesus was 
the cousin of uh, John the Baptist. Now, Jesus and John are very important to the story. God sent John ahead of Jesus. You remember this? If you've ever read the New Testament, he sent John into the region of Galilee to be a preacher. And he had a very simple message. And his message was, knock it off. Just knock it off. Whatever you're doing wrong, knock it off. Now, the biblical term for that was repent. Just stop doing what was wrong. He was a prophet to preach repentance. Now, the, the reason that John was sent to do this, to preach repentance, was because God was going to do something new, very new. And he was sending John so that the people would be ready for the new thing that God was going to do. And he was saying, you won't recognize the handiwork of God if you have sin in your life. And you know that's true. If you are harboring sin in your own life, you will miss the handiwork of God around you. Sin blinds you from what God is really doing. So John was in everybody's face. Knock it off, knock it off. And he was kind of a weird guy according to the, the text. He, he acted weird. He, he wore animal skin. He lived in the desert, which is not weird. I love the desert. And he, he ate, you know, fruit, I don't know, things that were growing in the desert. He just acted like a crazy man. It's one of those homeless guys that you see downtown and you're not sure how to approach the person. That was John. Yet God raised up this guy, John, to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And John began baptizing people. He had those following him. They accepted the message of knock it off. And they said, we want to follow you, and we want to follow the right way, and we want to see the, the great work of God going on, so we want to live right. And, and John was baptizing them in the Jordan River, and, and thousands of people were being baptized by John, including Jesus. Jesus was baptized by by John, and as a, and this was, they were baptized as a sign of repentance. That they had received the message, knock it off. And listen, if you are a believer, you need to be baptized to uh, to identify with Jesus Christ fully and to say publicly, I'm a follower of Christ. And if you haven't done that yet. Please, you know, indicate that you want to be a follower of Christ and be baptized. So here it was, and you can read this all in, in Luke's gospel, and Mark's, and, and John. John was bold. He was fierce. He would tell you the way it was. But the problem is that Herodias moved into the palace with King Herod, and this was against Jewish law. Now, none of the Herods were Jews, but it was offensive to the Jewish people, and John 
really didn't miss that point. He began to preach out loud in, in the public square against the sin of Herodias. And he would name her. And she was at the local Starbucks and she would hear John in the distance and she would hear John saying something about her, that she was an adulterer and she was living in sin and, and she did not like this. I mean, she had married her brother's brother, her husband's brother, and moved into the palace. And, and John is calling her out and saying, she needs to knock it off. Knock it off. And Herodias got mad. She's getting madder by the day. And she hates John and wants him dead. I want this guy dead. And she asks her husband, would you kill that guy? He's, he's, he's calling me out in the public square. Kill him. And Herod agreed, but according to the extra-biblical accounts, was afraid to kill John because John was quite popular and there would have been an insurrection in his country and he couldn't afford to have that going on, couldn't afford the, the riots and so on and Rome would come and maybe remove him from his power position. So all of this is part of the story of Matthew and Mark, and so it can be confusing. But I want to pick up the story this morning in Mark chapter 6. And verse 17, it says this, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, and <laughs> I like the way Mark puts this. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Antipas's wife, his brother Philip's wife. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Knock it off. Stop doing this kind of thing. Now, John is, is referring to not a Roman law. He's referring to an Old Testament law, not a Greek law, an Old Testament law, that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So verse 19 says, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. You ever met somebody who nurses a grudge? They're not nice people, are they? And they ruminate on this, and they get angrier about it, and they want to lash out, and she wanted this guy dead. I mean, she was not content that John was in prison. She wanted him dead. I want the guy killed. Now, part of this is her conscience, I'm sure. She knew that this wasn't right. She was living in a way that wasn't pleasing. I mean, even in that culture, it was weird, as it is in our culture. But part of this is that it was just crazy. It was just crazy if someone leaves their husband for their husband's brother. And so this is playing out kind of like a scene of Dateline. You know, they, they, John, they're setting up the story of John and, and this, 
this triangle of, of King Herod, Antipas, and Herodias. And doesn't mention about how probably Philip may have been glad she's gone. I don't know. Just the way it happened. And so it says she wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. She wasn't able to. And a person who isn't able to begins to, to think about ways in which she can get him back. And maybe there's a way I can kill him in the end. So she's thinking about this. In verse 20, it says, because Herod fear, feared John and protected him. Look at this. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So there was a respect that Herod Antipas had for this guy. He respected him as a prophet. And he probably heard about people being transformed by his preaching and heard about the crowds of people that were following him and were being baptized and their life was transformed by this man's teaching. So then it says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled Yet he liked to listen to him. So this is the day before YouTube and cdac.ca slash messages. I mean, they couldn't go on to social media and listen to this guy. So whenever Herod was bored, which was quite often, he would bring John up from the prison into his palace, and he would listen to John preach. And preach would... Uh, John would preach a message kind of to his private audience of Herod. Maybe Herodias left the room. I don't know. Some of his guards and servants and cooks and the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. Now, this was before the Internet. And he would hear about how the Messiah is coming and what God is up to. And by the way, you're living in sin, and he'd twist the knife. Knock it off, Herod. Knock it off. And Herod concludes, I like John. I like this guy, and he doesn't deserve to die. And I'm sure Her Herod heard that John was the one who baptized one day, and when Jesus was walking up to, to him, he looked at Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he identified, he was the first one to identify that Jesus was the Christ, his cousin. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he, would, uh, he was the one that baptized Jesus and he witnessed when Jesus came out of the water there was a voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, he saw who Jesus was. He declared who he was. And he heard these supernatural voices affirming that Jesus Christ was actually the Messiah, the Son of God. Then John, in John chapter 1, verse 29 says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here it is. Look, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of, of the world away. This is the one I meant when I said, 
a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And there's a lot packed in that verse, but what you need to see was John understood who Jesus was. He was fully convinced it was part of his messaging. And John actually announces the, the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. What a privilege. John was on the front line of seeing who this Christ was. He was convinced. People came up to John and said, you're the Messiah. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. No, I, I must decrease so that he can increase. This is the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. So all of that you need to keep in mind because we're going to go to the next part of the story now. And here is the situation. John is in prison, and this is tough. This is really tough for John because he did everything right. He did everything right. Everything that God asked him to do, he was doing. He was not in prison for anything that he did wrong. He was there because of what he was doing right, and he's thrown into prison. When people thought John might be the Messiah, he said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I am not even worthy to unlace his sandals. One is coming who is greater than me, he would say. So now it's confusing that John finds himself in prison. He got there for doing the right thing. Have you ever been in a bind for doing the right thing? And that's why sometimes we say, what's wrong with God? Why am I in this bind when I'm doing what I've been asked to do? So if there's ever a time for a miracle, wouldn't this be a great time? Wouldn't this just be the best time? Yet John rotted in prison day after day, day after day. Friends of John came to visit him in prison and told him all about Jesus, what Jesus was doing. He was out healing people. Crowds were following him. There were miracles. They'd say, hey, John, you know, the other day this leper came up to Jesus and Jesus just said something and all of that disease fell from his body and his skin was like baby skin. He healed him. He was freeing people from demons. They'd say, hey, Jesus, this guy was frothing at the mouth. He was insane. And Jesus spoke a word and demons came out and he was in his right mind. I mean, this was a miracle worker. This guy had extraordinary power. They would tell Jesus about how he would talk to women in public. He was doing all kinds of things. He healed even foreigners. A Roman, a Roman soldier came up and said, hey, there's somebody back home, one of my guys that is sick. Would you speak a word and heal him? And apparently Jesus did, and the guy was healed. And I mean, this was amazing. He was doing all of these things for the strangers, yet Jesus was not doing anything for his own cousin, John. 
John remained in prison. John sitting it. After a while, John was, was having second thoughts. He was not feeling the love of Jesus. He was thinking, why is he doing all this for the strangers? Can't we have a little bit of nepotism? Like, help me out, Jesus. So John approaches this really awkward situation in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent the disciples to ask him, pause. Now, the, the question he's about to ask, it, even his own disciples would do a double take and think, really, John, you, you want us to ask Jesus this question? And here's the question. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect somebody else? I mean, what he was really contemplating in his heart was, what's wrong with you, God? Why am I in prison for doing the right thing? And I think John knew the awkwardness of this situation, but he assured them, look, I just need a word. I just need some reassurance. Have you ever been there? Things are coming apart at the seams of your life, and you're just saying, where is God? I just need some assurance that he's here. I need, I need a promise. I need a word. I need confirmation. I need to know. And here's why that's important to us. It is interesting that when we are in our circumstances and, and, and there's change for the better or for the worse, it impacts our confidence in God. And none of us here are immune to it. Remember when um, some of you years ago, you went to college, you, you left home, maybe you left the farm and you came to the city, and you were having so much fun. I mean, life was great on the campus, wasn't it? There was party after party, and, and you would forget about God. You would forget about your faith roots. You just didn't need God. Or maybe it is that you started your career and you began to make lots of money and you were meeting lots of people and your schedule was full and you no longer had time for God and you left God in the dust because things have changed. Or the opposite can be true, more like John. Things are not good. You lost your job, things aren't going well in your marriage or your finances or with your kids. You began as a Christian, you prayed and prayed and prayed, but things are not going well. And you find yourself needing a word, needing confirmation because things are not working out for you. And we can lose our faith when we trust and we pray and we have faith and God does not come through and we wonder what's wrong with God. I lose faith when God is inactive or inattentive to my happiness and when I go through a tough time. And why is it that we are prone to seasons of dryness and, and inactivity by God when it is our life? It just happens. 
This is part of the human experience. Part of life is that there are seasons of pain and seasons of turmoil and seasons where life is difficulty and seasons of physical pain. And this shrinks us down to size when we can only think of ourselves and our own discomfort. And so John is in this state where he hears good reports of of Jesus doing all these things, but his world is no bigger than his prison cell. And he begins to doubt. He begins to doubt the goodness and the character of God. And he begins to doubt whether Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah. And so John asks his friend for a favor. Would you just go and ask Jesus this question? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Because I want a Messiah that takes me out of my pain and out of my prison. So human. So, those good friends, they traveled over where Jesus was. And he's conducting this amazing healing ministry and they see the long lineup of people waiting to have a touch from God. And finally, they get up in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, before you heal number 64, we have a question from your cousin. Remember? Remember him, John? John, the guy who's in prison. You know he's in prison, Jesus. Yes, yes, I know. I know he's there. And here's the question. And Jesus, this is kind of embarrassing. We're only asking on behalf of John. We would never ask this. But our question is, are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus does not lash out. He doesn't say, hey, of course I'm the Messiah. Hey, what, what are you asking this question for? None of that. He doesn't say, hey, tell John tonight I'm going to break him out of prison. We're going to write on the prison walls, ha, ha, ha. Try and find me. He doesn't say that. What he does say is, go back. This is verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. You know why? Because John couldn't hear. And he couldn't see. He was confined to his prison and his pain shrunk him down to the size of his prison cell. And then Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so they're writing this all down. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Leprosy are cleaned. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. And they turn around and they're, they're, they got the message all written down. They're going to go back to John and tell him. And I imagine Jesus, um, as they're walking away, he says, oh, wait, 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 one more thing. And this is really important. Write this down. Write this down. Tell John this. And they pause and they look back at Jesus. And he says this. Blessed, happy, is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Happy and blessed is anyone who doesn't 
stumble at economy. And this is so important because Jesus, you are saying that you might actually do something or cause something or allow something that would cause us to stumble away from you? And Jesus' answer is yes. This is where you'd like to stone me and remember I'm only the messenger. Yeah, so I want John to know not to stumble because of something I have done or not done. And they say, you know, John is rotting in prison, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes. Don't you like John? Yes, I like him. Did he do something at your family reunion that ticked you off? No, he didn't. Because Jesus says in verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there, is, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Jesus says, is saying, he's the greatest person I know who has ever lived, but no matter how much faith he has or obedience he displays, because being in prison is part of John's... It's what God is doing in John's life. And he's in prison. And Jesus knew it would be hard for John to maintain his faith because having the power to bail him, Jesus chose not to. And I want you to know that this is great news. Because of this. Your personal experience does not necessarily coincide with how God feels about you. You understand this? Your personal experience does not necessarily coincide with how God feels you. And don't ever lose sight of this. Because it's easy to mix this up and think that when things are getting worse and God seems inattentive and we begin to make wrong conclusions about God, and we can make this mistake of hanging and letting faith hinge on what God has done for us lately. And Jesus reminds us in the middle of our desert and in our prison, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on the account of me. Months ago, Bev and I were in the Middle East. And we were with some international workers. They took us out of the buildings walked us down a road to where there was a, a water system in the desert. So there were no microphones around, no cameras. We dangled our feet in the water and we conversed with those international workers. The international worker said something to me to all of us who were guests of him sitting there at the side of the water, that has, has uh, penetrated me from time to time and reminded me of why I am a believer. And he said this, those of us who are in the Middle East realize that we are in a dangerous place. And we remind ourselves that the goal of life is not to be comfortable, and not to avoid pain. And we talk frequently and openly about the fact that we may not come out of this country alive. We may be killed for our faith, but we must deposit the name of Jesus Christ 
in the middle of a very hopeless situation here in the Middle East. Friends, God didn't raise you up and give you resources and wealth and all that you have so that you could be self-sufficient and independent and happy and wealthy and comfortable. God has planted you where you are to be the light and hope of Jesus Christ. And you must remind yourself that this is our purpose and that our personal experiences do not necessarily coincide with how God feels about you. Now I want to conclude with this advice before this song. And I want you to look back. And I want you to remember and reflect outside of your circumstances, beyond your prison walls. Reflect on what God has done for you. Remember the times that God came through for you? What is happening now does not discount the reality of past answered prayer in your life. The difficult patch in your marriage and God came through. The difficulty in finances and God provided for you. All of those things where he radically transformed your life, those past interactions with God were, with God were real and they were true. Look outside of your prison wall and the difficulties you are in right now and remember, God was real then and he's real now. And God is just not expressing his reality the way you want to now. There's nothing wrong with God. But he is with you. He is with you. And your current pain is a season. And remember, God is with you in your pain. And we need to pray, God, do it again. Come through again. And in the meantime, we have a community to support one another. And we have circle groups that walk with us. And we have ministries that help us. Because honestly, life is difficult. But God will not fail us. And in the end, we will see him. Would you stand? You know, at Circle, we encourage questions. That's why we encourage Alpha. Some of you uh, have been believers a long time, and you, you've never been taught or discipled in a way that understands your past, your story, God's story, and how it interacts. And we have something called... Um,
I'm over 65, or almost. Vantage point. And vantage point explores your story, God's story, and why you're here. There's an information meeting in Salon 41 right after the service by Common Ground. You might be interested in just hearing what it's about and taking time to know what God's purpose is for your life. There are people here this morning that would like to answer questions, pray with you. Don't leave if there's something in your heart that you just need to resolve. Trust that you have a great week. Next week, we're going to have another story. We're going to examine, is there something wrong with God? So thank you for being here. God bless you. May you go with his peace.